Day in 1982, thanks to the use in the movie Rocky, this song goes to number one, I the Tiger Survivor. When asked why he thought the song was so successful, uh, Survivor member Jim Petrick said, I guess if you want to analyse it, it's the powerful beat, which is so simple and primal. It's the reason marching bands still make formations to it. It's the eye of the tiger, Peter Dunn. It's the thrill of the fight rising up to the challenge of our rival. That's Unite a Future all over, isn't it? Yes, it is. In fact, we, we used, um, in a similar vein, we used um, Joe Cocker's Up Where We Belong as a theme yeah. song for a couple of campaigns. That same sort of, you know, it's important, but also it's the inspiration behind it. Yep. And the last known survivor stalks his paint of the night and he's watching us with all with the eye of the tiger, face to face, out in the heat. It's quite political, isn't it, Peter? Yes, it is. And, and that's what, you know, I think, is the mark of a good song, actually, one that's that's easy to listen to, it's inspirational, but it's also got a powerful message. Yeah, all right, so there you go. Uh, the Tiger use for United Future. Ella, song mean anything to you? Oh, it's a good thing that we're not on Zoom, otherwise you would have been, <laughs> been exposed to me dancing and bobbing and jiggling like it's, I did 40 years ago, but not looking quite as cute. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, no, come on, Ella. I just want to know what is – if you're a songwriter, if, you, if you're a composer out there, email me or text me. What, why is it that some music That's like that is just so enduring? I don't know, Ella. A moment in time. It yeah. captures a moment in time. And the 80s was very much that that sort of wild, boisterous. You know, we'd had the, the, the madness of the 60s, the conservatism of the 70s. Yeah. And, and we all made had big hair and big shoulders and, and we were forging into the eye of the tiger. I mean, oh. it was a moment in time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well said. 1982, what a year. Uh, Ella Henry, Peter Dunn with me this afternoon, 25 to 5. Lovely to be with you. 
Water Safety New Zealand are calling our drowning figures a national disgrace, with 2021 being the worst year for drowning deaths in a decade. A new report from Water Safety NZ shows that last year 90 people drowned. Drowning rates are also getting worse for Māori, also Asian Kiwis, as are drowning rates for males and those aged over 45. The release of the report coincides with World Drowning Prevention Day, and to mark it, a dawn memorial service was held in Auckland. Drowning Prevention Auckland Chief Executive is Nicola Keen Bigala, and was at the service and is with us now. Nicola Kiora. Kiora. Uh, a how did the service go first up? It was beautiful, and it was a very moving way to start uh, the global initiative today, and to be the first in the world to be doing something. Uh, unfortunately, we're marking the loss of life, and for me, it was a proud moment to really put the humanity back into the drowning statistics and to acknowledge those people and those families that are, are suffering the devastating loss of a loved one. Just for a moment, dwelling on those figures, uh, last year being the worst year for drowning deaths in many years, they're quite something, aren't they? They're quite... Disgrace is a big word, but they, from whatever way you view it, it's quite shocking. It's completely shocking, and I agree with Water Safety New Zealand's perspective that it is a disgrace. Um, however, there is hope for the future. We can educate our families and our communities to keep themselves safe and on and around the water, and that's what we're really trying to focus on today, is acknowledge the loss of life, but also start conversations about how we can behave differently around water. All right, World Drowning Prevention Day today. So before we go to our panel, what does need to happen to uh, reduce the number of drownings? Well, we really need to uh, accept that uh, water safety education is a lifelong journey. It doesn't stop when our swimming lessons stop, but we're all engaging in the water throughout our life. And and, uh, the the way that we engage in the water at different ages uh, needs different skills and different layers of protection. Yeah. Ella? Well, I grew up um, in a country where every little school everywhere in the country had a swimming pool. And come rain, hail or shine, you know, no matter how poor your your swimming togs were, you got thrust into the pool every day. And I, I think there may be a correlation between the, the, the change in education funding policy that schools got rid of those pools because they needed other resources and the lack of, of, of swimming skills in our pop general population. I'd love to see those statistics changed. Yeah, I can recall, just on the back of that, I can recall, you know, your school pool and uh, what, what, was, what was it, Monterey East, a little school pool there, and we all, you know, learned to swim or have a go and just swim. Is that an issue along with others? I think equity for swimming lessons is definitely an issue. I don't think necessarily the closing of school pools is, is the whole problem. Drowning is a complex issue and the solution yeah. is equally complex. But gosh, wouldn't it be amazing if every Kiwi kid had the ability and the uh, opportunity to learn how to swim? Peter? Yeah, well, I certainly remember the, the, the swimming lessons in cold school pools and other pools when I was a child. And I think that's an important part of you know growing up. It's a bit like road safety, really, learning those basic rules of how to look after yourself in the water in the same way as you look, at, look after yourself on the road. But I wonder whether one of the other issues that might be contributing to this appalling rise, which has been sort of steadily increasing for a few years, is that with 
more affluence around. You've got more people taking to the water either on small boats or jet skis or whatever with less knowledge about what they're doing and therefore greater um, greater potential risk to themselves and others. And I wonder whether that's that's, a fig- that's being reflected in these figures as well. I think that's definitely a factor. And we had, you know, the freedom that uh, getting out of COVID offered us all. Mm. And we also had a warmer summer. So the water was three to four degrees warmer. We saw people, uh, more people at the beach, more people on boats, new toys such as paddle boards and kayaks. Uh, yet people still um, and underestimating the risk and overestimating their abilities. The report, I mean, just some of the things that I was looking at and I was thinking, well, I actually can't. I mean, some, some of the holes in my knowledge, gaps in my knowledge. The report revealed that 60% of New Zealanders cannot identify a rip. Uh, and I was just thinking, well, can I, can I identify a rip? And Nicola, I don't think I can. Well, isn't that a good thing to learn today, Wallace? Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess it's my point exactly that there is always something for us to learn. And when we're going out into open water environments in particular, really understanding the weather conditions and the way the environment can change is very, very different to the controlled pole environment where we learn how to swim. The other thing, someone, Rowan says here, I wrote a story on a near drowning that I was involved in. I want to encourage everyone listening to this to learn CPR because you never know when you might help to save a life. And I actually, one of the reasons I got you up today, because I was just inadvertently reading the story about someone, a member of the public, who jumped in and saved um, a young child's life. And I just sat there, I read it, and I thought, oh my goodness me, Nicola, I don't think that I'd be able to do that. I wholeheartedly agree with how important CPR is, and particularly to understand the difference between CPR for adults and CPR for children. Yeah. Very good. Nice to have you on the program, Nicola. Uh, before you go, though, um, in terms of this, it is World Drowning Prevention Day today. If there is anybody listening to this who wants to take it to the next level regarding their knowledge of um, water safety, what can they do? Where can they turn to? Well, our website is a great place to start, dpanz.org.nz, and we have a free e-learning platform there where you can engage in modules uh, that you're interested in, whether it's rock fishing, kaimawana, gathering, uh, home safety with, in regards to water, uh, all sorts of things. So I encourage people to have a look and learn something new today. All right, Nicola Keane-Bigelow there, Drowning Prevention Auckland Chief Executive there. Someone says, I totally agree with Alan regarding school pools and for fencing regulations for pools, uh, the backyard pools we grow up in are out of reach for most people now and people don't have the opportunity to learn water safety. But that is something that, uh, while uh, Nicola said, it's not the whole reason, of course it's not. Um, (laughs) It is noticed, Ella, that there are fewer schools with pools where you learn to swim. And and those were political decisions. Decisions were made at very high levels that there were other priorities. And I'd love to think that any decision that has been made politically can be changed. Peter, did you, are you a swimmer at all? Peter, did you learn to swim or? Oh, I did, yes, as a kid. And yeah. I'm, I'm a sort of a moderate swimmer now, I suppose. But, um, yeah, look, I, I think that um, it's just, just school pools, it's community pools as well. I mean, there's a, there are pools in Wellington that are closing at the moment because they just can't get the staff to keep operating. And I think that's a really sad thing too. 
Right. You're on the panel with me, Wallace Chapman. Uh, some wonderful responses coming in. You enjoyed uh, Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. So thanks for that. It is 4.43. You're on the panel. RNZ National, Ella Henry and Peter Dunn with me today. When we head over to Melbourne, many extol the virtues of the old jump-on, jump-off trams mixed with the ultra-modern trams they have there, so easy to use, regular. They're almost synonymous with uh, Melbourne. New Zealand cities, well, they have them too. Christchurch has a small operating tram track, but the Auckland Tram Network had one of the most extensive electric tram networks in the world before the tracks were ripped up. The issue was raised again by the New Zealand Herald's senior journalist, Simon Wilson, who wrote an article about designing an Auckland city for the future. He brought up the issue of Melbourne and how it has, has become synonymous with trams. And one person who does recall going on a tram was author and journalist Lindsay Dawson. And we thought, well, let's get Lindsay on the programme. Lindsay, lovely to have you on the panel. Thank you, Wallace. Yeah, you have to be pretty old like me to remember trans, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> well, I, I, I was just amazed, actually quite stunned to learn that we did have this extraordinarily extensive tram. That, you know, they went out to Point Chair Beach, Avondale, we had Oiraka, Mount Roskill, right out to Onehanga. But Lindsay, what was the route you took? I used to walk up Dilworth Avenue from my uh, school. I think I was in my very early days of high school then. So it must have been about the very late 50s. It must have been almost just before they started ripping up the the tram tracks. And I'd catch a tram that came trundling up from um, Newmarket from Broadway. And I would go along Rebear Road and hop off at the top of Upland Road and then then walk home down the hill. so, yes, it was a very nice way to travel, too, it has to be said. And yeah. whenever I get on a Motet tram, tram now, which I do occasionally, it just brings <laughs> it all back. You know, there's the bell that goes, ting, ting, and there's the funny noises, and there's the man standing at the front of the tram. Well, I don't know if they do stand, but in my memory, the tram driver always stood at the front. No, no, the um, Motet, the Motet uh, one, they do stand. Oh, okay. And maybe I'm getting my memories mixed up. And then there was the conductor, of course, in a dark navy uniform, and he had a, a you know a brown leather bag for taking the money and handing out the tickets. Amazing. And these days we talk about you know somebody being punished inadequately, like it's a, a slap on the wrist with a wet bus ticket. But I think originally it was a wet tram ticket, <laughs> and they were flimsy little things about half the size of a, of a business card, with, which would be clipped, of course, with the conductor's. Um, clipper. Um, I was reading it. Uh, I had to do some research because I could barely remember anything about this, really. <laughs> but um, I discovered that during World War Two, apparently a whole cohort of women climbed on board the trams to be conductors, and they were one of the first women in New Zealand to get equal pay with some male conductors. So that was a little bit wow. of history as well. It's amazing. So, I mean, what really struck me was, because we know Motat and we love it, or 1.8 kilometre of track, very small. But here you are saying this was a significant mode of travel and Tamaki Makoto. I mean, how many, were there many tram stops? How did you get on? Um, the uh, cars had to, there were tram stops, which were, I think, just sort of, universally recognised because I wasn't driving then, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. But um, yes, the, when the tram stopped, the cars had to sort of line up there like they do in Melbourne 
you know, you have to be very careful because the passengers have to cross the street. Um, and recently I was in uh, San Francisco, and of course they've got what they call the streetcars there, and which are absolutely famous. And, you know, one of the great landmark things to do in San Francisco to get on board the streetcar and go down those steep hills in the tram. And they're always almost universally painted either red or green, aren't they? They, they don't have much variation in colour of the good old trams. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, Ella, isn't this extraordinary? It's kind of a window into another Auckland, an Auckland where uh, you'd have these get-on, get-off trams. It's quite stunning to actually hear this. Well, I, we, my family came to Auckland in 1960, so the, the yeah. trams had just gone. We still had trolley buses, though. It was ah, a, a very, yeah. very big deal to come all the way from West Auckland. It was like a day trip, you know, in the old Morrie 1100 into the city and uh, be able to catch the trolley bus all the way down Queen Street. It was like a tourist trip. <laughs> and, um, and I always thought, you know, the, those forms of transport that were much less reliant on on our non-sustainable fuel, it was an absolute tragedy that our city fathers made those choices back in the 1960s and 70s. And I always wondered maybe whether they had a vested interest perhaps in, you know, quarrying and road building and it was more convenient for them to have truck transport than electrical train transport. Well, I gather that um, there was no maintenance of the tracks or the trams in New Zealand Whereas in Melbourne, they did keep doing that and they kept on building trams over there through World War II. And so our trams are getting pretty decrepit. And the other thing was that I think everybody just fell in love with cars then. How foolish we were. How little we knew. <laughs> well, the the text machine's go, uh, going down memory lane. I tell you what, folks, Ian says, Kia ora, Wallace, Wellington, late 50s, catching the tram from the railway station to Boys Institute for guess what? Swimming lessons. Lovely tying of the stories, Ian. Uh, my granddad, Jim Preston, was a tram driver in Auckland, then a trolley bus driver. And Eric says mum was a conductress in Wellington during the war. She had some interesting stories. Um, Peter. Well, I'm, I'm a tram bus from way back, and um, I've got all the collections of all the books and photographs. We had very extensive transits and around New Zealand. Auckland's closed in December 1956, just as expensive was the system in Christchurch, which had closed a couple of years earlier. And I think Lindsay's right. The real reason was a lack of investment in uh, the, the, the um, tracks and the rolling stock uh, brought on by the war years and the fact that the trams were, during those war years and into the early 50s, the predominant form of public transport. Most of them had been built in the 1920s, maybe the 1930s, so they literally wore out and there just wasn't the investment to replace them. Tragic, really. Lindsay? Um, just going back to the, tro- the trolley buses, I remember them too. There was the very special trolley bus that used to go up Victoria Street or Wellesley Street. And often when they went round the corner from Queen Street, the sort of hooks that hung on to the electric cable at the top would come off and the um, man would have to get out and run to the back of the trolley bus and try and prop it back up onto the line. It was all, it was all very dramatic. And yes. the mums used to hang their prams on the back of the trolley bus. <laughs> yeah, there's <laughs> some whole different thing. <laughs> There's some wonderful uh, um, uh, memories, Lindsay. Uh, I, I recall the trams. My mum told me that until the 50s, they had spittoons for the tobacco chewers. Everyone smoked in my day. Oh, gosh, they're just running through. Felicity says Wallace at Lisbon, they have it nailed with trams. So uh, 
on that, I think the general gist of the article, Lindsay, was Simon was trying to point out that in a lot of cities around the world, trams aren't of the yesteryear, they're very much of the future. Is oh, there a yes. little... Is there a, and gliding and beautiful and air-conditioned, probably. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> is one, of the things, one of the things they did in Melbourne was to keep the trams was the state government passed a law some years ago that the tramway system was, was to be treated as a historic place, which meant, of course, you couldn't just go around ripping up tracks and replacing trams willy-nilly. So they've, they've put it in place semi-permanently. And uh, that's unfortunately not what happened in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, Louise says, we've just been on the Gold Coast. The new G-Line tram is just fabulous. Cheap, easy, comfy. So finally, Lindsay, and and thank you so much for memories. They're getting a lot of uh, response here on uh, on text. Are you just a little bit sad that, you, that, that when you think of trams now, you just go to Motat to do the 1.8k circle? And it's very cheap too. I can't remember how much it is, but and it's a lovely thing to take small children and grandchildren onto because they just they're wide eyed and you know unbelieving that this was the way that everybody travelled once. <laughs> hey, Lindsay Kiora, thank you so much for your time. That's, uh, Lindsay, yeah, Lindsay Dawson, author and journalist there. Uh, Wallace, are you aware that the tram track and the viaduct is going to be torn up to make way for more residential housing? Uh, wasn't aware of that. Is that true? We'll try and find out. It is seven to five, the panel. Now, New Zealand is about to be hit with a pollen explosion starting in the north, heading south a few weeks later. It's the yellow dust that drops out of the air onto your car bonnets into windscreens. More than 30% of Kiwis have allergies with hay fever being the most common one. So we thought this is an interesting one to bring up on the panel. We have Dr. David Fountain, a pollen forecaster in association with Met Service, Dr. Fountain Cura. David, are you there? No, we are trying to get a secure line to our pollen forecast. I just, I do want to bring this, uh, I really wanted to bring this uh, subject up though with our guest. New research suggests that casually reaching out to people in our social circles means more than we realise. Calling, texting or emailing a friend just to say hello might seem like an insignificant gesture, but is more significant than you think. Just sending a brief message to check in on someone, just to say hi that you're thinking of them, and to ask, hey, how you doing, can be appreciated more than people think, the report's author, Dr Peggy Liu, said. And I thought, this is something to raise with our panel to see whether they do it or not. Peter, your thoughts on it. Is this something that you do? Because it's something that I don't do. No, I do it in a patchy way, but I think the research is absolutely correct. I just know how I feel when someone sends me a message out of the blue just saying, hey, just checking in, how are you all going well? You feel really chuffed and you feel lifted up. So it does sort sort of make you feel a bit guilty when you're not that prompt in responding to others. Yeah, I thought it was quite extraordinary, Ella. The study found that people tend to underestimate how much friends like hearing from them what do you think? Well, I mean, I'm Maori, so, you know, our whole culture is bound together by manaakitanga and aroa and whanongatanga, so that, that's just how we have survived. And um, what I love, though, is because my 
kids are from a different generation is uh, they'll send me emojis, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and my friends and I who are a bit late to this emoji thing and have finally figured out which of the emojis you don't send to each other um, are sending, you know, little pictures to each other and smiley faces and gifts. (laughs) And uh, I mean, you can do that in the middle of the day. It's just a way of saying to somebody, I'm here and I care about you. I, I hear what you're saying, but the report, and it was interesting, uh, actually, very interesting article, they said, just because text is pretty rare. And I suddenly realised, Peter, that I am someone who no longer sends that just because text. I don't tend to just reach out, quote unquote, just for nothing. I just don't do it anymore. And it's kind of sad. Do you yeah, think, I think it's a blokey it thing? Yeah, Ella, you first? Sorry, do you think it's a blokey thing? Because, you know, us gals are always looking for an mm. excuse for a gossip. And, and I, I mean, I'm just wondering if there's a gender um, data in there. Sorry, Peter. I'd, no, I'd love to, I'd love to know, Peter. I'm just uh, ashamed, I'm, I'm yeah. ashamed to say it. I'm ashamed to say it. I don't send it just because texts. I don't see the point of them. I'm going, am I missing something? Yeah, I do occasionally and not as much as I should. But I just wonder whether, whether it's, we're, we're from an era where, you know, if you, you sent a message to someone only if you needed to. And the idea of some sort of spontaneous contact through, in those days, the telephone, now through text or whatever, it's probably still a bit difficult for some people. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, across all 13 experiments in, in, involving nearly 6,000 participants, those who initiated contact significantly underestimated how much it would be appreciated. So just a reminder, perhaps, eh, that uh, uh, Peter Dunn, it's a, uh, particularly in this 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 era where it's been a long two and a half years to keep in touch no matter how weak the tie, right? Absolutely, yes. I think it's got to be renewed effort. Mm, very good. Thank you so much both for um, being in touch. I just have to, uh, about three or four texts got in touch with us talking about politics and wanted to know, will there ever be a resurgent United Future Party? And if not, why not? Well, that's a very good question. I hope the answer is yes, um, but I don't see any sign at the moment. And yes, meaning what? You're not going to be involved or? Oh, I'm not planning to be involved, but you never know. Okay. Leave the space open. Uh, thank you very much. Well, that's interesting to know. All right. Um, we have photos of a retired Auckland tram being trucked to the fledging Matakohe uh, Museum in Auckland in the late 1950s. My father and other local truck drivers from Hokateri were the carriers. Other trams went to Motat Museum in Western Springs, Auckland, a few remaining just north of Thames, converted to holiday accommodation. Avis in Stillwater says, thank you for being with me Monday afternoon. Oh, the dulcet sound, the huge sound of Arthur Tiger. Ella Henry, Peter Dunn, kia ora to you both. Thanks for being with me. Kia ora. Take care. Take thank care. You. Yeah. Wallace Chapman with you back tomorrow at 3.45 sharp. Lisa Owen, Checkpoint, next. Next.